0: Thank you. Well, my personal prayers for, uh, energy, the second shift is, uh, is the sort of time of day when you get sort of tired and, yeah, it's yes to time and that's where, that's almost where my brain is at. I've also got some sinus thing that's going on that's been plugging up my head in, in the funkiest way I think I've ever experienced in my life. So, um, so it's, it's a weird state that's, that I'm sort of in. Anyway, want to get into this. I, uh, Um, as as it was said, I'm I'm working currently for the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina. I've been in that role for 11 years now and worked for five years previously in England and 10 years previously in a large non-denominational church in the Chicago suburbs. And so I've had a couple of very different experiences of youth ministry and my work now is not directly with students all the time. I mean, I I help lead a youth group, but um, most of my work now is with youth ministers and with churches trying to do youth ministry. And so I'm I'm engaging with people doing a lot of different things, observing a lot of stuff, some of which I'm excited about, some of which I uh, shudder to think about. Um, And we have, over the course of time, shifted how we think about and do youth ministry in, um, in our diocese. It's kind of a unique place. I don't know if you're If you're not familiar with the Episcopal Church, there's sort of the Episcopal Church and then there's the Diocese of South Carolina as as an odd exception. We're just this anomaly in that we're evangelical and growing and the rest of the Episcopal Church is liberal, most of it, and not growing. So anyway, it's kind of an odd place. But anyway, so I want to get into this. What I'm uh, getting at today is the idea of what we practice in youth ministry. has been a tension that I've seen for years that it doesn't always match up to what we actually believe. Um, discovered that real early on, actually twenty some odd years ago. Just hearing people talk about, well, we do this, and I'm thinking, but that doesn't really match what I've been taught about God's love or what I've been taught about um, ministry, how we see it in the Scripture, and so forth. So that's what we're going to get into. And um, I don't want to. I want to suggest, my, sort of as a launching point, uh, the challenge that I think we face. The challenge is <clears throat> use ministry statistics and writing. Are suggesting failure or inadequacy. If you look at the books out there that have come out in the last five years or more um, and articles and um, the massive studies that have been done that are showing our teenage American teenagers as moralistic therapeutic deists and all of that kind of stuff. I mean probably you're you're familiar with at least some of that writing and it's been saying failure or inadequacy and I've been in different circles watching people freak out over that which has been fun. But um, I I'm thinking that our theology and our practice not matching up has a lot to do with where we are today. And so I'm thinking what if we solved this situation or you know, moved in a direction of solving that misalignment in order um, to, to get youth ministry going in the way that it should be going. So uh, we're going to explore some key areas where our theology should be shaping how we're doing youth ministry but often is not. We've adopted practices that are inconsistent with our understanding of God and His expectations of us. And if we've done that, then the question is why. I'll probably raise more questions than I'll answer. And if you go away wrestling with this, I'll be happy um, because I think that that's really more helpful than somebody standing up in front of you and giving you all the answers. So I want to talk about theology and practice: what we believe and how we behave. Um, Youth ministry has historically, and I underline that word because I'm thinking in terms of a big sort of historical perspective rather than one individual situation or, or real recent history, has historically been led by pragmatism. What conferences, books, seminars, and all that kind of stuff that I've been to over the years have taught is what works. What's going to get kids in? What's going to you know make this happen, or what's going to make that happen? What works? And if somebody says, "Well, wait a minute, that doesn't jive with what I believe," listen, it, it works. Just just trust me, it works. Just do this because it works. I've heard that so many times that it started to drive me nuts. If we could point to numbers in attendance and decisions made, we thought we were effective. That was really sort of um, I went into full-time youth ministry, 86. Whew. So um, that's a, a bit of time ago, and. That was really where things were at, and the first church I worked for was a 5,000-member church and I had a 25-member high school youth group that I was expected to grow to hundreds. And so uh, pointing to numbers and, att- and attendance was probably the biggest sort of key factor to whether I was going to keep my job or not, so I had a vested interest in that. Historically thinking, <clears throat> we've had good intentions, um, but I think we've had bad measures. Um, the church wanted to stop losing kids. When you when you kind of look at the history of youth ministry, kind of go back to maybe 1970 or something or other and, and realizing kids are not really a part of the church anymore or they're not as, there was a drift going on and realizing they're all going to parachurch groups and stuff. and The church wanted to stop losing kids, so they start investing more in youth ministry. Parents wanted their kids churched. Um, they want their kids to grow up in the church. They want them to have a positive experience of the church if their parents are churched themselves. Usually, if they're not, then that's not the case. Our measure was what was coming in rather than what the end product was. So we're looking at sort of, you know, what's coming in is our our attendance rather than what are we sending out, which later on would come back to haunt us. This meant that pragmatism trumped. If it works, you just aren't going to mess with it. It becomes a sort of a sacred cow. If this is what you can do to get 200 kids to your youth group, then this is what you're going to do, and nobody should attack it because, hey, you know, you can't argue with success. Well, you have to redefine it if you're going to try to do that. And and I have to be fair. I mean, we couched all of this in the language of winning souls, of making disciples, all that kind of stuff. But measuring the income rather than the outcome ignores the end results. And then I don't need to explain that any further because I think it's it's pretty clear hopefully. Historically, we had good intentions, and I think we've had some perhaps bad methods or maybe less than desirable methods. So we really put a big emphasis on attracting kids, and we do anything we can to sort of rally kids together. I I remember listening to a a teaching series from an organization uh, that was trying to teach people to do youth ministry, uh, what do they call it, Uh, Jesus or Jesus-focused youth ministry or something like that. It was all sort of like, let's look at what Jesus did and let's do youth ministry that way. And their whole sort of emphasis was, Jesus attracted a crowd, then he told them the gospel. So you need to attract a crowd and then tell them the gospel. Now, how do you attract a crowd of teenagers? Well, rock and roll works, sports works, foods works, and you know they're just kind of laying out this whole sort of plan for gathering lots and lots of kids and having a great time with them. And then in the last ten minutes or twenty minutes, you're going to sit them down and say, "Now, here's why we really brought you here." And I'm thinking this is bait and switch. Jesus didn't attract a crowd intentionally. Jesus attracted a crowd because he was the Son of God, and there's a there's a big difference in that. So anyway. Um, attraction became sort of the, the biggest sort of thing uh, we wanted to attract and then retain because we don't certainly want, want kids to come to church and then drift away um, we had an, a, ten, a tendency to segregate kids the youth room sort of became the sacred space for teenagers and then kids families, in the first church I worked for families came in the door on Sunday morning and everybody went to their age related groups and then met up at the doors on the way out and families in that particular church didn't even worship together Um, It was the strangest sort of thing. Um, I've never been in another church like it. It was a great church, but that was a weakness that they had, that even the teenagers were sitting in Sunday school at the same time as the worship service was taking place. But we've sort of segregated that out so much in a lot of churches, not all churches, but a lot of churches are so segregated out that ages aren't interacting. We um, got really into entertaining. We realized if we're going to attract kids, we want to keep kids. We got into entertaining. We learned from MTV, all that kind of stuff, um, and it's quite frightening. Uh, and then we eventually got into the practice of replacing parents as disciplers, and we realized that you know we're the youth ministers, we're the youth experts, we know how to communicate to teenagers, we're good at this, and so I can disciple teenagers, and the parents don't know how to do that, so I'm going to do that for them. And and when we got comfortable with that, that that's not really particularly a good thing. Thankfully, I don't think this stuff is the driving force of youth, force of youth ministry. I think this is the launching point for people saying we need to change. And, and that's why I get excited about the future. But what I don't hear when I read books about people saying, well, what is the future of youth ministry? And we got all, you know, it's, it's not gone right. We failed, whatever. Um, what I don't hear is people talking about the sufficiency of scripture. I don't hear people saying we need to go to the Bible to learn how to do ministry. For well, all along, we've taken the Bible as our content. It informs what we teach, it is our, our sort of it's our library. But we've not used it to inform our method, I don't think. I mean, some people have, but um, I'm speaking in a broad generalization. So we've known to do what the Bible to teach what the Bible says, but have we done ministry like the Bible teaches? And and I'm not trying to draw a really hard line. In other words, if it's not in the Bible, it's not biblical, and therefore it shouldn't happen. I'm not sort of that person. I've met some people that'll say, well, you shouldn't do youth ministry because youth ministry is not in the Bible. (laughs) And other people argue youth ministry isn't. I don't want want to go there. That's not. I'm not trying to draw that draw that hard a distinction. But what? what we do needs to be consistent with scripture and what we need to look to is what are we doing in making disciples and how do we see examples of disciple making in scripture and what do we learn from that and then do that as a result, if that hopefully is clear as mud. So we want to look at biblical ministry examples and just look at a couple of passages and then talk about how does, how does this flesh out in terms of how we do ministry in order to get our theology and our practice to match up. I tend to turn to the Apostle Paul more than I seek to imitate Jesus on how to do ministry. And, and that might throw some people off, uh, might be my own shortcoming, but I think the divinity of Jesus makes it very difficult for us to reproduce the ministry that he did. The incarnation, in my mind, was an event and not a model for ministry. And, and I've been to places where I'm in a total minority with that perspective. Um, Paul's model was that of being an ambassador. And I look at that and go, I can do that. I can be an ambassador for Jesus. I can't be God incarnate, even though it would be cool to think that I was or, um, or to even try. It's kind of frightening. So I want to turn first off to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the first 13 verses um, in particular and, uh, and look at this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory and we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Um, he goes on to, to, to encourage them even more in this, in this sort of vein. The thing that strikes me about this passage is it's Paul reflecting on how they've done ministry already. It's Paul reflecting on how they've gone about making disciples. And to look at that and say, well, how did Paul do ministry? What is it really... All about, and I underlined some key lines there, but it's tiny and and would be difficult, probably, for most of you to pick that up or seen that too much. But I want to suggest you a few things that we can draw out of that passage. Paul's ministry proclaimed the gospel boldly. You see that real clearly in that several places. The emphasis is on proclamation. The emphasis is on proclaiming the gospel. We brought the gospel of God to you, and that was that was first and foremost. Paul's ministry was not deceptive. He was really clear about we weren't trying to impress you. We weren't trying to trick you. We weren't trying to do anything that that would um, obscure or whatever. We were not trying to be deceptive in any way, shape, or form. Paul's ministry was relational in nature. He talks about becoming... um, Affectionately desirous, um, sharing our lives with you. That particular line, um, some organizations use kind of as, as the centerpiece of their incarnational um, theology of ministry. Um, <clears throat> but when you look at it in the context, there he gives a, he gives uh, a, a metaphor of a mother and he gives one of a father, and so he's talking about sort of both masculine, and feminine ways of, of nurturing and. Um, this whole sort of relationship, this, uh, we've shared our lives, our, indeed our, our whole selves with you, our lives with you, because we had loved you so much. Very, very relational. Um, and that's, that's great. And then it's deeply rooted in Scripture. We get to the point where he says, you received the Word of God as it is the Word of God, not just as words of men, etc. So we see that real quite simply, and then, I ran across this quote I was um listening to a podcast of a John Piper sermon and this thing just like knocked me uh, off the elliptical at the health club. Um when he made this statement, <clears throat> if you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you do not get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. That is not evangelism, that is deception. And he repeated it. I'm sitting there I'm at the health club going, this is freaking me out. If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you do not get converts to God. You get converts to an illusion. That is not evangelism. That is deception. And I'm thinking of all sorts of things I've seen and or done in youth ministry, thinking that this was a way to get the gospel out to kids. Can you think of examples of sort of where you kind of go, this doesn't jive with that. Anybody want to share one real quick or two? An example of uh, of how you've seen uh, the biblical portrait of God altered in order to attract converts. I don't know if anybody wants to be bold enough to speak up, or not.
1: Well, I mean, if you maybe consider the only law side, a lot of the you know we've toin- we coined the term like Turner Burn. Mhm. I in a way, I it's not as as much altering as it would be concealing yeah. the full story of God. Yep. And I know I was saved a good four times that way. Hmm. I've been baptized three times. Wow. Because bad theology and was told I need to walk the aisle
0: again. Yeah.
1: So it's devastating.
0: Yep, yep. I was at a um, youth conference two summers ago in Ireland. It's the largest youth, Christian youth conference in, in Ireland. And one of the speakers that was there was an American. I was kind of embarrassed by it. Who stood up and talked about how, uh, you're a teenager and, um, you're hurting. Teenagers are hurting. And he gave, he had this dramatic thing where he he had some people share stories of pain in their lives. And he said, Teenagers are hurting people. You are teenagers. You're hurting people. Jesus wants to take that pain away. And then he does an altar call on that basis. I mean, he, he called for a response come forward to receive, to, to allow Jesus to change your life. And my group that was with me, we go walking out of that session and they go, where was the cross? Where was the gospel in that? And I was so proud of the students that I had there with me because they picked it up right away. The guy's message actually, and this is the other part that was freaking me out about it. The guy's message, the first sort of 30 minutes was just him putting on a song song and dance for us. He got a saxophone and he plays it and he's telling jokes and he's doing all sorts of just like me, like me, like me sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, if you obscure, alter, obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. And kids who responded to that message that night and didn't understand the gospel and thought God's going to change them, and they have no idea how, and it's not going to happen, and then they're disillusioned. It's, it's really quite frightening. I have a friend who goes on and on about the whole sort of bait-and-switch model of ministry how we'll have these great fun events and then have a 10-minute sort of talk about Jesus at the end. We've advertised that fun. We've said bands are going to be there, games are going to be there, inflatables, there's going to be, you know, food, there's going to be all sorts of cool stuff. And we don't advertise that we're doing this in order to share Jesus with you necessarily. Or maybe that they'll tag on you know and our speaker is this or whatever. And it just doesn't, it's like we've got to make Jesus fun. We've got to dress up Jesus in order to make him cool for kids. And that's um, obscuring the gospel in my mind too. Anyway, uh, just I, I pick on that subject because it really, it really gets to me. Relational ministry needs to move beyond the leader-student relationship. Just picking up again on, on Paul's stuff from 1 Thessalonians. A couple of years ago, um, a friend of mine and I wrote an article in Youth Worker Journal um, that we called Beyond Relational Youth Ministry. No, we called it Post call it post-relational youth ministry because my friend thought we might catch more attention, which we did, and actually got a lot of flack on the article. Um, Because we talked about how relational, the sort of incarnational relational model of ministry really permeated the church, came out of Young Life, Jim Rayburn's work, all that kind of stuff, and how it got distorted along the way. And so the Young Life people all thought we were attacking Young Life, which we weren't. We were talking actually about the distortion of it through the church. But really, we our emphasis in the article was we sold relationships short by not becoming the body. We sold relationship, relational ministry short by thinking that relationships all about the leader-to-student relationship. That uh, my ministry is all about how many relationships I build with kids, rather than whether there's relationships being built from student to student. So I don't want my ministry to be a, a web of just everybody's connected to me and nobody's connected to anybody else. And so we are saying we need to teach kids how to be the body, how to, be commun- how to live in community, and how to feed and care for and encourage one another so that when I'm someday not in this picture, um, this picture still exists. Um, anyway, so <clears throat> I think we've kind of sold short on that and, uh, because we need to move beyond the, the leader-student relationship in, in terms of doing relational ministry. Um, rooted in Scripture is more than eisegesis or simply using Scripture to support our ideas. A number of years ago, I ran across a great quote, that, uh, a phrase that has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, C.S. Lewis had said, and I, and I can't actually can't place what book it was in. Um, I've tried to go back and try to find it. He talks about Scripture. He says, many use it, few receive it. And I really got thinking about that. I've used Scripture all of the years I've been in ministry, and how much am I receiving that? There's years that I was using it as a tool and not receiving what God had for me and for the group, but rather using it as this, this great resource library, and I would go to it to grab the things I wanted to teach and then go and present them to my kids and not be concerned about whether it was that lesson was going to change my life. I, I shifted how I do things, how I think about things. Also, uh, for years, was doing very topically driven youth groups, and, and we were taught to do this years ago. Go to seminars and and workshops and all sorts of stuff. And you kind of figure out what are the teen topics. We're going to talk about sex, dating, drugs, drinking, um, friendships, families, um, media, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you lay that out and those, that's plan your schedule around. I'm going to teach those and I'm going to look in the scripture to find what that has to say. We end up doing a lot of eisegesis. One of the youth ministers in my diocese um, blew my mind when he had an 8th grader, I think it was, who raised his hand after youth group one night and said, how can we study portions of scripture instead of look at topics and see what the Bible has to say about that? And he explained the difference between exegesis and eisegesis to his youth group at that point. And they got it. They understood. And he said, it's not that we'll never address a topic. We will address topics. But most of what we're going to do is look at Scripture and let it speak to us. There's a difference in how you come out with that. We go on in another place in uh, Paul's writing. And just to kind of build on this, what Paul desired for people, I think, is, is expressed well in Colossians 316 to 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, I I, I read that, and what really is is sticking to my mind is if we've got this word-centered ministry, then this is our outcome. You know, this is that, this is our vision. This is our picture of our preferred future that, that Paul is painted for. This is what he wants, the word of Christ to dwell in believers richly. And so, proclaiming the gospel boldly and, um, being rooted in scripture and being relational and not being deceptive, um, goes in, in this direction. I, I threw this slide in at the very last second, um, when I was prepping this up because I thought it might be helpful to a few people. Um, I have boiled down over the course of time, thinking about youth ministry and different models of it, and so forth, to try to say if we're going to do scripture, do ministry that is consistent with scripture, then really, if we just think about two words, we can probably put it all together. And, and, and it's so, it's, I mean, it's maybe oversimplified, but <clears throat> if we think in terms of ministry, youth ministry, as think of our content, and we think of our context. And if we let the gospel shape all of that, then uh, if the gospel shapes all of that, then um, our content, that's what we teach, it's kind of a no-brainer, we're going to teach about Jesus. Um, It's also, I mean, in my context, I've had to explain to people, we want to proclaim the gospel to teenagers and we want to start from Genesis and end in Revelation or be anywhere in between. And and some of them, sometimes I get eyes popping open and go, wait a minute, I thought the gospel, I thought that was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then the application of it in Acts and so forth, and they're not thinking Old Testament, so we've been moving them into Old Testament and showing them that um, we see the gospel throughout the entirety of Scripture um, and God's larger redemptive plan. So uh, with content, what we teach, it's a no-brainer. The context, though, is what I don't think a lot of people give a lot of thought to, and that is if the gospel is shaping our context, it shapes how we teach it it shapes what we do with our youth groups. It, it becomes, uh, it, it, it redirects sort of our priorities. So a youth meeting that we kind of think, oh, I got to play some games for a while. I got to do this and this and this because that's what we do. And then I'm going to teach. I'm gonna, we're going to have this teaching time. Um, and we think, you know, that's the meat and potatoes. Well, I did that for years where game time ran over. We got the guitar out. We sang songs and, and that kind of ran over. And then instead of my 20 minute teaching time, all of a sudden I got 10 minutes left. And I'm trying to squeeze in this message, and going, wait a minute! The most important part of the night is getting shafted by the rest of it. That's just not that's not the way it ought to be. And I can't, in my mind, I couldn't reverse it. And let's going to do teaching and then do the other. My predecessor did that, and it flopped miserably. Kids left the youth group. Um, and then I had this con- uh, this conf- uh, confrontation with a guy, and I was I was young, real young at the time, 25 or so, um, and we had one night at youth group where there was some gang members from Chicago, and the Chicago suburbs, some gang members from the inner city. We had a guy in our, in our church that did ministry to gangs and he brought these guys in each year, brought in a couple of them to share their testimonies. And they, they were sort of the feature of our youth group program that night. And so we had three or four guys that got up front and said, here's what I was up to. Here's what I, here's the gospel that I heard and here's how it's changed my life. And it was really cool and powerful stuff. Uh, afterward, I had one of them get in my face, and he was really upset with me for the way I ran the meeting. Not his portion, not the testimony portion of it, but the bigger picture of the meeting. Because we played some games for a while and did a bunch of stuff, and then we had sort of content time. And he said to me, he said, why did we spend 40 minutes playing games before we got into the important stuff? And I, I didn't have an answer for him. I was like, well, thats that's what we do. And he goes... These kids, and here he's like 16 years old. He goes, These kids need to get into God's Word. It's life and death out there on the streets. These kids got to get into God's Word. They need to be studying this stuff, they don't need to be playing games. <laughs> I got this 16 year old Hispanic guy standing in my face telling me that we shouldn't run youth group the way I do. And it, it, that never left me because I'm realizing wait a minute, I wasn't prioritizing the gospel. I was prioritizing game. I mean, I was prioritizing sort of them liking the group or making it attractive or something or other. Whew. So then if we're if the gospel is going to shape our context and if everything's pointing towards proclamation, then our whole meeting needs to be shaped around how are we moving through this meeting so that the pinnacle of the meeting, the most important thing, and kids get the most important thing, and it's the best time of the night, best time of that hour or hour and a half or whatever you got together to present that material. So we're not running around and getting like marshmallows and chocolate all over everybody and then sitting down and saying, okay, now it's time to open up your Bibles. That doesn't work. We just disconnect. We eliminate all those disconnects and make a meeting that flows smoothly and and is uh, gospel-centered. So we want to build relationships. We want to build a sense of community in the group, teach kids how to love one another um, in, in a healthy biblical sort of way. We want um, We want great interaction in a group. We want them to, to do Christian things, and we want to make the gospel really, really clearly. We want to get them physically with their hands in the Bible. We'd love to have them sing songs of worship. We'd like to get them praying with each other. It reshapes the entire way um, we do ministry when we think about the gospel shaping our context our and our content as well. Jump forward... Um, And look at a couple more passages. And these in more recent years, well, some of them in more recent years have have been shaping what we're doing in South Carolina. We look at different passages and then stop and go, what does this say about how we ought to be doing ministry? And they're familiar ones, or at least most of them should be. Deuteronomy 6 should be really, really familiar. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Um, a number of years ago, one of my colleagues, a guy that I work work with, who used to be a youth minister and he shifted over into faith formation, and he uh, he brought into our diocese somebody who started talking about Deuteronomy 6 and started going around teaching in our churches about what do we see when we walk? And he actually walked our youth ministers through this. We walk from Genesis to Revelation. What do we see as God's plan, primary plan for disciple making? And, and you get it clearly here. It's the, the context of the family. It's, it's in the home. It's, um, it's with your children. That God's primary intention is passing the faith on to the next generation, via mom and dad to their kids, and we recognize that that breaks down in the church. Family becomes helpful in that, but and perhaps in our um, in our broken, sinful world, this picture doesn't work because of that, and we have to somehow get back to it. But he he challenged us in that, and uh really got people thinking about stuff so our churches started moving in a direction of how do we equip parents to disciple their kids and then our youth ministers are all going wait a minute that's there's job security issues here <laughs> they're panicking going what does it look like when the teenagers parents of teenagers I'm working with they're not able to they're not equipped or able or confident to disciple their kids so how do I do this and so we've been working through that we also hit some seven, uh 78 Um, Verses 4-8, to we will not hide them from our children but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and pointed a a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's a part of a larger um, bit in the Psalms there, but you get this uh, reinforce this idea of God's intention passing the faith on is something that's supposed to happen from father to son, from mother to daughter, in the context of the family, that that's God's design. It's obviously when you look at the history, it's broken down quite often um, and and yet that shouldn't stop us from saying that's what we got to keep pointing back to. So we raise this issue in our context with youth ministers uh, how do we do discipleship how do we do youth ministry um, and equip parents to do that and we're actually looking at this point as how we do youth ministry now should be equipping those teenagers that they can do this when they're parents and I'm not concerned about whether we can get the parents of teenagers it'd be great if we can but I'm not going to focus all my energy on getting today's teenage parents um, to to be able to disciple their kids I want to see the generation that we're working with, the teenagers, be discipled in a way that they can turn around and do that with, in their family context and pass the faith on to the next generation. When I was working in England, I was really conscious of the, play, of the fact that this failed, The faith was not passed on to the generations. They didn't talk about it at home. They didn't, they didn't teach it in the family, and you've got 4% of the population in church on a Sunday morning. Um, Ireland, which is far more traditional and uh, not quite as hostile to uh, Christianity as England is, um, Ireland, it, they've not done this. And so people don't go to church and they don't understand why people would go to church. I mean, a small percentage of people go to, go to church. But it's, the faith has not been passed on from generation to generation and you see these post-Christian nations as a result of it. And there's other reasons, other factors that go into it. And then <clears throat> one other passage that... Uh this one's been in my in my head for from the beginning. Matthew 28:18 to 20 and Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold I am with you always to the end of the age." The point that I throw that out there is our task is making disciples, not converts. And what I've heard for 20, well, for at least a good num- part of my 25 years is people talking about making converts. We've got to get kids to make a decision for Jesus. Uh, I got trained in, in college by Young Life. We we're all about making, making, uh, making converts. It was all about we've got to get the gospel out to kids, get kids to make a decision. And the church will then disciple them, or we'll get them into a small group or something or other. The emphasis wasn't on making disciples. And it didn't sit quite right with me because I thought, we're trying to do evangelism and not do discipleship. We're trying to do evangelism primarily and discipleship maybe a little bit. And the task that we're called to is not evangelism. It's discipleship. And I've come to see evangelism should be coming out of discipleship, not the other way around. It's a little shift that happened in my brain a long time ago. Uh, A couple of final challenges, things that I've run across... And then we can talk, if you, if you want, uh, about, about some, how some of these flesh out. <clears throat> these are a few personal uh, points of conflict that I've seen between theology and practice. And they're either ones that I've wrestled with or ones that I'm witnessing all the time. So they're, they're examples that, that are fresh on my head. And I just threw four at them, even though there's probably lots more. Um, gospel ministry, first of all, gospel ministry is teamwork. And if you look at Paul and you kind of go, well, I mean, in one sense, he seemed like he was out there kind of doing things on his own. But if you really read into, really read scripture, you find he's got all these relationships. He's always mentioning people. And there's so much plurality in what he's writing we, 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 there's a real team sense. Somebody pointed that out to me a number of years ago and made me realize gospel ministry is teamwork, and yet a lot of these ministers I work with are sitting in situations like, I can't get anybody to help me. It's me and my spouse, or it's me and one other people. And about five years ago, now I was a little bit longer than that, I called that out in my context and said, we need to not have Lone Rangers. And, and I had a bunch of people get really angry with me. And, and some of them tried to get me kicked out of my job, actually. It was a real dark sort of period of time. I'm still there, so I guess we're good. But um, it, was, it was really difficult for them. They're like, they hired me to do youth ministry. They're not helping me, so I'm doing youth ministry. And, and I'm saying the gospel, is, gospel ministry is teamwork. Um, and they don't disagree with that from Scripture, but they're not necessarily practicing it. We've got to line that up, and it's really, that's really difficult. Another one, right doctrine is important, but I don't dare bore kids by teaching doctrine. Um, I don't know if you run across the book, Do Hard Things. I really, really liked that because it, it, written by teenagers, says the challenge put before teenagers is not high enough. We're much more capable than people think. And our youth ministers, I, I told them about that book and suggested we need to raise the bar. And a number of them have raised the bar and found we can teach kids a lot more than what we realized we can teach them. The, what's boring about doctrine is not doctrine, it's the teacher. And, and, and that's you know where we get stuck. Um, so if we think it's important that kids have a right set of beliefs instead of screwed up set of beliefs, if, we, if we're appalled by the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism and we want kids to actually know what, are the, what does the Apostles' Creed mean, what does the Nicene Creed mean, what, is, what does Scripture teach us about God, then we've got to teach doctrine. Um, third one, God is sovereign but I'm in control or their salvation depends on me. Um, that's what I wrestled with personally for for years. My heart would break when I'd see some kid wandering off and, and I'd be going, i gotta, I got to change this. I've got to fix this problem. And seeing other youth ministers who are who wrestling with that um, feel like I've got to get these kids straightened out or i got to get this kid saved. <clears throat> wow, that's not... That's not a sovereign God, uh, and, and yet I can't just let go and go, just let go and let God and see what happens, you know, sort of thing. That's not, that doesn't work for me either, so there's a tension to work out there, but I have to keep in mind God is sovereign. I'm not in control. God's in control. Their salvation doesn't depend on me. It depends on God, so I need to be a prayerful person who's proclaiming the gospel. And then the gospel is not moralism, but we tend to teach behavior modification. And this goes, I'm going historical here on youth ministry back in uh, a little bit in time, but I think it's still out there like crazy. And I ran across this graphic um, that spoke volumes to me when I first saw it. It was a guy who I had come to speak to our youth ministers who, who talked about this. When we look at this, and look at this picture, we've got a little pyramid or whatever. We've got scripture is the foundation of everything. Uh, from Scripture we build a theology. Um, our theology informs our practices, and, and by practices I mean prayer, worship, study of the Word, all that, and you know how we live out our lives as Christians. And, and the guy who was originally shared this with me, he was kind of he was a little bit more monastic than that with it, um, contemplative practices and things like that. And then all of that should be shaping the behavior. But when you look at the typical and I do mean typical um, youth ministry sort of planned. We think about what we're going to teach, and what do we, lots of folks teach, is starting with the top. You start topically, you're going to start at the top. Um, and you look at sort of the history of youth ministry, and you think about some of the major campaigns of like True Love Weights or. Um, silver ring thing or dare to share or all sorts of different things like that which can be great tools and may have changed people's lives but they're very behavior modification driven and so we start at the top and we want to change their behavior or, or, or a kid comes into our youth group and here's our teaching and here's this idea that I need to become a better person God wants me to live to a higher standard and then they hear us if they stick around they hear us talk about well the way we're going to do that is we're going to we're going to teach you how to have a quiet time and and then so you have this quiet time that's your practices and we haven't even gotten into teaching theology or scripture now we'll you know we can clearly say this is all rooted in scripture and and we'll support it with scripture but we we tend to go from top down on this or historically we've gone from top down and it blew my mind when somebody put this in front of me and said this is the biggest the bottom's the biggest. That's our foundation. Lay down the foundation and, and build on that so that behavior flows out of all of that rather than pushing behavior um, from the top. I don't know what questions people have. I mean, just kind of threw a bunch of stuff out. Maybe I should throw a question to you first um, and, and ask you what... Where do you see theology and practice coming together or disconnected? And, and how, does, how do you see that being solved?
2: In my, in my context, one of the things that I think uh, my boss and I, I'm the intern, she's the director, feel fairly confident that we do well is starting with the theology and the, and the gospel and making that very, very clear. But then what's often difficult is... Um, the, you know, the black and white teenage mind is like, okay, cool, God loves me, what do I do? And, and how do we move into that question mm-hmm. without reverting back to moralism? Like, how do yeah. we make it clear that this is flowing out of the gospel and not that? Mm-hmm. So we don't teach them of pyramid wrong, but mm-hmm. it's almost like the question is, could you teach it that way? And then the, the parents that we have are also asking that question. Mm-hmm. Like, my, my kid knows that Jesus loves them, tell him not to have sex. And exactly. So <laughs> it's like... Exactly. You know,
0: yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a challenge when you've got expectations of parents and you've got expectations sometimes of church leaders. We want to get these kids sh- straightened out or we want to we teach them to behave right. And so that drives that, puts that top emphasis on there. Yeah?
1: One, thanks for this. Um, I, uh, I shared with uh, my senior pastor before that I thought method taught more than content, and meaning that the way we do things can undo the things that we're teaching. mm mm-hmm. um, and uh, just could never get across that in a form of ministry that we can undo the values we say we have because our people watch our actions, or our, our content always changes, but our method is repeated. And so they actually pick up on what we're doing. Even the, uh, Students, particularly, can't articulate the dissonance between our method and what we say we believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one thing that we went through in the last year, and it was hard to hear at first, was as we were sending kids off to college and then doing follow-up with them when they came back, we found that they couldn't, they could go to a Bible study, and they loved Bible study, on their campuses, whether Christian or state, but they didn't know how to study the Bible on their own,
0: mm-hmm. and my first response was defensive, and to say
1: they just didn't pay attention, because I teach hermeneutics often, mm-hmm. um, but what I realized, once I had a person confront me on it, was that I'm teaching principles of hermeneutics. But I'm not teaching the kids how to study the Bible. I'm giving them abstract ideas mm-hmm. um, and then working on it. So one thing we've done to switch about a third of what we do in the year, instead of them coming to hear somebody talk, we have them come and do 20 minutes of solo time in the Bible, and we give them a Bible study method. Mm-hmm. And they sit for 20 minutes alone and study God's Word. Then they go to small groups and discuss what they've discovered. And now we're finding students through these two or three tools that we're using, uh, some that we stole um, and some that we've developed, that they're able to study the Bible on their own. What we had taught them before, our method was, come to a small group, that's where you will dig into God's Word. Mm-hmm. Which, strangely enough, we shouldn't have been surprised Then when our college students said, I only know how to study God's Word in a group. Because that's all we ever did. Yep. And now this so sets an example of we had to change our method. And it's been interesting to watch students say, I read the Bible more at youth group today in my whole week. And I mean, they're just, they're coming alive. Mm. And it, it's so much simpler. We just pick a passage and go in Bible study method. No one's teaching it. We still prepare because you got to debrief them because they'll come up with different ideas. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it's a, it's a great thing. And so our, our method helps reinforce that's where we had Good. To Good. On to get Good. On
0: yeah. Yeah. In, in, our, in our context, we've, we've been trying to do some similar things in terms of equipping kids to study Scripture, but also emphasizing and, and trying to expose them to um, we want to teach the Bible one on one, we want to teach the Bible in small groups, and we want to teach it in large groups. And we've only in the past just done the large. I mean, kind of, if I go back 10 years ago in our context, the large group teaching was a youth talk. It's quoted some scripture, but it wasn't really get kids into scripture, and we've shifted that. And the uh, small group was where Bible study took place. That was just assumed, but in some cases it was we didn't actually do a Bible. Some of our churches, their small group Bible studies were studying somebody's book, not a book of the Bible. And and we've tried to help people understand there's a difference there. That can be helpful, but it's not the same. And then one-on-one's been a whole new a new area for us to introduce. That we can get people to sit down and, and open Scripture one on one, and that's really where we're looking at: how do we equip teenagers to uh, um, to be ready to pass their faith on to the next generation when they're adults? Is if they can understand how to sit down and open the Bible with one other person or with two other people, um, they can do it in the family. So, in getting your hands into it, which has been it's been fun for us, I, I appreciate what you said. Others disconnects or connects
3: so I have an assumption that we're all theologians Uh, even agnostics are because they have an idea of what they believe about God Mm -hmm. Um, and if behavior really is shaped by our beliefs which I also think is correct um, there's just a lot of bad theology out there Uh, because that's what's shaping just like you said Mm -hmm. we want to do this the way Jesus did so it's WWJE Um, So what would you suggest as corrective measures for not just people in here who work with youth, but it it really has to translate to the rest of the church because the expectations are coming from other bad theology in the rest of the church. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stick my neck out here. (laughs) Okay, try to do these corrective things because I went to the conference. What do you suggest as maybe next steps or ways of breaking down those presuppositions are built into our culture.
0: Breaking down presuppositions.
3: Like, um. I suppose that, you know, Jesus did this, so I'm going to do it, even if it's mm. out of context and it doesn't work, uh, as an excuse to do uh, attraction kind of ministry. Mm. So we go back from a conference like this, and we say, yes, I get it. Hmm, let's do something. Um, getting fired for the gospel is a great calling. Uh, but what do you suggest as next steps? Mm-hmm. Somebody leaves here and they say, "Yes, I want to, I want to make the theological turn in youth ministry and let good theology inform my yes. practices."
0: making that turn and getting people to think differently about yes. youth ministry yeah. is what you're. How do we? How do, we, how do we, Yeah. How do we? How do we correct our, our the direction even maybe of of where we're going? For me, the thing that I've been uh, talking to people about and done some writing on is trying to help people see how do we get to where we are today statistically. And when we look at um, we look at the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, why are we in that state of we've got all these kids that have a vague idea of who God is, they're either cool with that or they're not, and it doesn't really matter. The details don't matter. Uh, and how could that be when we've had such so much going on in youth ministry and churches all over the country from all these different traditions some of which have done it better, obviously, than other ones have. Some of them have done horrible job, and some of them doing wonderful job. So you've got this real wide diversity, but you've got this general population of teenagers where they aren't where we want them to be. So if I, if I sh- help show people the gap between where we want them to be and where they are today, then my next thing that I want to show them is how teenage, teen- the world of teenagers is different today than it used to be. I'm in a context of a traditional mainline denomination, so there's lots of parents and lots of leadership in the church that they think, you know, I had a youth group experience, it was great for me, and um, I want my kid to have that experience. And I tell them the world of adolescence is radically different, the issues of adolescence haven't changed, but the world that they live in is radically different. Their context is not Christian anymore. Um, it's, it's moralistic therapeutic deism, it's, it's whatever. And how we used to do youth ministry got us to where we are today. So if we continue to do that, we shouldn't expect a better result. You know what I mean? So if I, if I point that disconnect out to him, if I point out the gap between where, where, we are, um, where we were, where we are, and where we are and where we want to be, then I can start to say we've got to think differently about youth ministry We're going to put put aside our presuppositions, put aside our our sort of stereotypes and notions of you have to have a rafting trip or you have to have a ski trip or or all those kind of things. And let's start from ground zero and clean slate and say, how do we build youth ministry um, from what we understand in Scripture? And and youth ministry isn't in Scripture directly. So the, the question is, how do we make disciples? So what does Scripture teach us about how do we make disciples? Is that helpful? And that's been a that's been a big part of my job working in a you know with seventy churches and having an, an audience with clergy and so forth where I can stand up in front of people and say the future is not the past and if you want a bright future we've got to rethink how we're how we're moving forward. It was another hand I thought. When you talk about you um
1: about it being
4: teamwork, mm-hmm. are you talking about seeing more like a youth minister and an assistant or is it more like getting parents and volunteers involved because our youth group fluctuates in numbers but it's really not a realistic thing for a youth leader to say I'm going to disciple 30 kids. Like that's, mm-hmm. Those relationships might be meaningful in some ways but you know they've only got 24 hours in a day.
0: Exactly. And we've only got them a couple hours in a week. Right. And <clears throat> so if we're trying to disciple 30 kids. We need a team of people that are going to do that. And I have been trying to emphasize to people, particularly professional youth ministers, paid youth ministers, your job is not to do youth ministry. Your job is to get the congregation doing youth ministry and you're blazing the trail. So you're doing it, but you've got to gather people around you, alongside of you, and equip them to do it. And hopefully work yourself out. I mean, in theory, you kind of want to work, work yourself out of a job. So that if you go away for a few weeks, things continue on, ministry continues to happen. Lead, organization always needs a leader so that you never actually work yourself entirely out of the job. But the um, the goal would be draw the congregation into ministry to the next generation because um, that's, that's the teamwork that needs to take place. And the flip side of it is I see too many that say, nobody wants to help, I ask for volunteers. Um, I'm, we're not asking for the right thing then. Are you
4: all seeing more success with like... like the? conflict i run into with, with trying to get people to catch that idea that like no really you can't do this alone uh, is that they're like oh well the, the kids don't want to be around their parents and so then we start asking other people that don't really have a vested interest i mean it's just it's hard to find those people that mm-hmm. are you know they're doing other stuff in the church or, or just what what kinds of people are, are you seeing success with that so, um I
0: mean, obviously yeah a yeah yeah Yep. The, the question being, what, what kind of, um, how we're, where are we finding leaders, what kind of... Yeah, just how of
4: generally, what are, some, what are some
0: places that yes. are... Yes, um, I have a, a, a bit of a, come to have a bit of a hang-up uh, when people just reject the idea of parents being involved in youth ministry, um, and I'm now at a point where my youngest just graduated from high school, and the last however many years they've sat in youth group with me as the last six years with me as a volunteer leader, um, not, even the, not even the youth pastor. And <clears throat> I've always been there and been a part of that, and that's not been a problem for them. We've had honest conversation with that, and um, they, they have interaction youth group-wise without me being present as well, which I think is really helpful. But <clears throat> over the course of time, somebody, I guess, impressed upon me, look for leaders, So when I was in the the large mega church, 5,000-member church, and had 25 kids in the youth group, and there was a couple of young adults that were my leaders that somebody had brought in before me, and I was told to go to the young adult group and try to recruit leaders, I'm thinking, that's not necessarily helpful. They don't have life experience. There's a lot of things. They're they're limited in what they have to offer. So I'm looking at the entire congregation going, where are leaders? I find an empty-nester CEO. who's full of life, energy, and just excited um, about his faith. And I said to him, would you consider getting involved in the youth ministry? And he looked at me sideways like, why? And I said, because you've got a vibrant faith, and you're... you love life and, and you're young at heart in a way. And I, I said, just come and see what we're doing and so forth. He came and saw what we're doing and he prayed about it and he got plugged in and was a youth leader for a good number of years. It's an empty nester. His kids are all college or older and running his own business. Um, and just taking a little bit of time each week to come to youth group and go on a, a retreat with us periodically and stuff like that. Uh, another guy I run across um, who was a realtor, single guy, 30-something um, and Discover what who he is. He's a real leader, and so forth. We got him plugged in for I think we had he was plugged in for about 12 years as a volunteer youth leader um, after we got him got him involved. And it's just identifying leaders wherever they're at. So in the next church I went to, I was looking across the spectrum, and I had noticed several parents who had a different relationship with their teenagers and with their with their kids' friends than was normal. I, uh, and I don't mean that in a, I mean that in a positive way. Um, that they could just really relate openly with kids, and kids liked being around them as, you know, this is so-and-so's mom, and I really like being around her because she's such a great listener. She's so gifted at that. So, you know, I approached that mom and say, I want you to pray about becoming a youth leader. I want you to come check out what we're doing, and, and I want you to, to think about getting involved. And we got several involved parents over the course of time because they related to kids. Not all parents relate to teenagers even their own, unfortunately we know. But uh, if you find the people who can relate to teenagers, love teenagers, love the Lord um, and are leaders and ask them to pray about that and call them into it, you should be able to get a, a diverse age group. The hard thing is the task of whoever's leading the, the ministry has to go find those people. And the only thing that leadership above, like the ministers in the church can do, is try to cast vision that every member in this congregation ought to be in leadership somewhere. Um, and, and keep youth ministry and children's ministry and all those kind of things at the forefront of the congregation. But that is the ongoing challenge, and that's the biggest reason why several of the guys I'm working with are struggling to get anybody more than just two or three people, and they got 40 kids coming to the youth group, and there's four leaders, and it's just not a good ratio. And they're like, I can't find anybody else.
2: One of the things we're trying, I, I'm part of a, I love it, but it's a very ingrown church. And so one of the things we're doing is in our new members class, mm-hmm. and which may be outside of anything you can impact <coughs> in your situation. But in the new members class, part of what we're doing is teaching, like being part of a church means participating. What are you good at? What do you have a heart for? And so we're pulling our leaders from our new members class, mm-hmm. which has its own risks You've got to run yep. the background check and spend time with them. But we're actually seeing amazing success with, with yep. that, both at plugging people into the church and getting the help of people. Yeah. 60 kids and two big staff.
0: So. Yeah. Which, is, which is great, because when you're looking at new members, uh, they don't have that sort of Im- culture of the church already there, so you can reestablish the culture of the church and say, being a member of this church means being involved in it, mm-hmm. which is excellent. Other questions or things that are going through your brain as we think about all this? that lull in the day. Yes?
1: It's more of a, yeah, I I just like to hear everybody's thoughts. Uh, When you think about your ministry, are you primarily thinking about students as your point of contact, I guess? Or, do you look at, like, the way I've been thinking about my my ministry is that I have parents, students, and lay leaders, and that's who I'm supposed to influence. Mm. Um, I found that's actually really helpful in creating a community Mm-hmm. But has that,
0: that been what you've been doing? or? <laughs> and, and I'd love to hear from a couple of people. Um, my perspective is the same as yours in terms of ministry. The ministry that I should be leading is teenagers, parents, leaders, adults in the congregation, et cetera, much broader than just I work with teenagers. And my first church, I worked with teenagers, and I was relegated to the downstairs and um, there was a, you know, there was a, there was a big difference between being on staff upstairs and being on staff downstairs. You worked with teenagers or children if you were downstairs, and, and a very segregated congregation. So it was difficult to break out of that mindset. But the second church I worked for was a very integrated church, and so I'm looking at going. I've got leadership team. I've got to invest in those people. There are people that, that are ministering to teenagers. I've got teenagers that I'm connecting with and, and evangelistic opportunities that are just mind-blowing that I've got to be plugged into. And, um, and how, am I, how am I connected into the life of the congregation in terms of feeding people as well, including parents and all that kind of stuff? How, is that wor- how does that work out for others of you in terms of is that where the mindset works or is that run countercultural to your church?
3: I think something that's in- important in this... We all have different kinds of churches, mm-hmm. and a lot of times we are visionary, and so we think this is where it ought to be, um, which is great. Uh, but you know, if your church is one that's very segregated, and you know the expectation is you, you keep those kids down there and keep them quiet, like the lepers, um, good for your context. Maybe just pushing a little bit on that—that mm-hmm.
1: that,
3: that may the, be the best scenario instead of having a hard line and you know, uh, risk alienating people. So I think you really have to be contextual in this idea and, and learn your church and exegete the community as much as you exegete
0: scripture mm-hmm. and good theology. Yeah, learn your context and see I what think, the needs are.
4: Um, our parents would be really confused if they heard us say, well, you know, we see us as ministering to y'all as well. They'd be like, I think they would say, well, no, we have our pastors, y'all are for our children. You know I I don't think that's the culture here at all mm. but it's actually kind of cool when you have an occasional conversation with a parent that's gospel oriented but it's rare and it, it's it's starting up now they haven't started doing kind of like classes about family ministry and doing groups where you bring parents to talk about family ministry but it's really new for us and I think they think it's just a little bit strange
1: mm-hmm.
4: at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the few K, like I was actually hired on as a children's minister, and just my job just kind of grew from there just out of need. But like there, I'm really not super duper with children it turns out. Um, <laughs> yes, my, the guy who hired me just thought I might be. Um, I don't have no educational background or anything, but what I am good at is finding people that are really good with little people. And plugging them in, and so I don't tell parents that I'm ministering to them. It just gets snuck in there, like it's like hiding vegetables in the, you know, like in a smoothie or something, like just trying to hide it in there and sneak it in. (laughs) That they're getting ministered to as well, and like it's important to me. Like I realize that I have your your tiny children for a two-hour maximum on a week. Like there's. There's no other like contact that I could conceivably have with them, but I have two hours. The best I can do is give them something to take home to you, as a parent, and open up that door for discussion because they live with you. They repeat the stuff you say. They make fun of the stuff I say, but they repeat and they believe what you say. So I try to come up with activities mm-hmm. that demand a parent to be present. Um, like we have a pumpkin carving, and people are like, "Can I drop my kid off?" And I'm like. No, they're short knives. Um, and then the other thing is like it, um, like during Lent, like we put together like a kind of an Easter basket thing, kind of like an advent calendar but for Lent, and you would crack open an egg every day. Well, they took 40 eggs home <laughs> with like a sheet, and they can't read because they're like size. And so Mom and Dad had to get involved in that activity. So we try to like sneak it in like, oh, look, we made y'all talk about Jesus as a family.
0: If um. Uh, to build on that, if if, <clears throat> if our area of expertise is youth, and we pay attention to youth culture and we're in tune with that, you stop and think about it. Most parents don't. They don't see that. They don't necessarily fully understand the, the world that their kids are living in, even though it depends on how in touch they are with their kids. But one of the things that we can do, the easiest, simplest way, we can um, minister to to parents is just helping them to understand the culture that their kids are. Are living in and, and then resourcing them to understand that better um, and that can be done through a, a newsletter, that can be done through email, that can be done through a blog, that can, there's just lots of different ways that we can start communicating information and handouts and resources that we send home and uh, telling parents about what, what it is that we're doing in youth group and informing them about that, telling them about books that we want their kids to be reading. Um, often, the parents will pick it up, and go, "Oh, this looks really interesting, and read it as well. Um, one of the books on the table that in the back of the main meeting room is called dig deeper and i 've been recommending it to teenagers and to youth leaders and, and so forth and I <clears throat> mentioned it at a seminar last fall where I'd actually had a parent about two weeks later called me up and said, "My kids got me reading this book." And it's fantastic, and he is so excited about it. And we're understanding stuff about scripture that we've never understood before. I just wanted to let you know, and and thank you for that. Very indirect sort of ministry to parents, but we have to kind of look for those indirect ministries, those roads to start to um, to speak to them and speak into their into their world in whatever whatever ways that we can. And there's lots of different ways that we can. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say.
4: Like, most importantly, to know and to recognize that you're not the final say-all for, for the Word, for the Bible, you know, because at least in my kids' lives, like, my husband and I are, like, the Bible people. Like, mm. their parents aren't, it's hard for them to sit through a service, but, like, just pulling in other people to be like, we're not the final authority on God. Look, there's other believing people.
2: Um, yeah. so you can read it and be in it yourself
0: and... Yeah encouraging them and helping them to see what their role could be. And part of the the movement that's been going on in our our setting with our churches and people coming in and speaking on Deuteronomy 6 and so forth has been really fleshing out what does it look like to to raise Christian families and what does it look like to do faith at home and what do you do if you're... And they've thrown lots of different sort of possible scenarios on and teaching in, in different... Different churches in our diocese that <clears throat> they've looked at uh, how does the whole church get involved in passing the faith on from one generation to the next what if your uh, uh, kids are grown up and your kids aren't walking with the Lord and you you know you regret that what sort of influence could you have now on them and there's a whole lot of different levels of of that that we've been putting out for people and it's really casting vision that's helping people see god 's got a plan for this and this is what that looks like, and and then how do we take some steps to move in that direction? So, any other questions, comments? It's getting late in the afternoon. It's time for a nap, I think, personally. Let me um, let me close this with a word of prayer, and we'll uh, we'll be done. And I'll be around if you have any other thing you want to say. Father God, we. Um, Thank you for this time together. We thank you for the calling that you have put on our lives to minister to teenagers, to young people, to the to the next generation. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have a clear vision of how you want us to do that um, laid out in Scripture, Lord, um, that your word would shape not only the content but the context of how we do ministry and what all that looks like. Help us to work through some of the theological differences between our, our practice and our, beha- our beliefs. Um, Lord we pray that you would uh, that you would take these things and and help help us to kick them around in our minds and share them with others and, and really work through them in our ministries and in our lives we pray these things in your son's name